hello and welcome to another episode of the Checkup Podcast from Metcast. In this series, Dr. Alison Vickers, a GP of 33 years and Professor David Jenkins, an exercise physiologist from the University of Sunshine Coast, discuss the importance of physical activity for the patients and just how far it goes in preventing and improving specific health conditions. And most importantly, discuss the underlying mechanisms of just how physical activity helps and the most up-to-date evidence of which types of exercise are potentially better for each specific medical condition. Today, we're talking about the role of exercise in not only preventing cancer, but also preventing recurrence in cancer survivors. I'm so grateful to Professor David Jenkins, who was the drive behind this series of podcasts. David, so lovely to be chatting with you today. Before we get into the nitty gritty of exactly how physical activity prevents cancer and which exercises work best, Perhaps you could just set the scene about the evidence there is for physical activity preventing cancer and also, importantly, preventing recurrence of cancer. Hi, Alison. We've long known in the literature that there's an inverse relationship between uh, activity levels. Epidemiological data have shown an inverse relationship between activity levels and the incidence of certain cancers, not all cancers, but cancers, for example, colon cancer, breast cancer are the most, um, certainly the most compelling data come from those. Um, This is epidemiological data and and your listeners will appreciate that it's, uh, it's not a cause and effect, but there's absolutely something there to explain. And what we've tried to do in more recent years is to run randomized control trials honing in on uh, specific mechanisms. And as you mentioned in your introduction, understanding the mechanisms will help us to prescribe most effectively different types of exercise to have the, the, greatest, uh, uh, the greatest outcome. So, um, so we'll move from the epidemiological data to try and better understand the mechanisms. Emma, the, historically, I can remember teaching uh, students at university up to 30 years ago, and Probably one of the, the early explanations that we had to explain this, this relationship, this inverse relationship, was, um, uh, was fat, body fat. Um, because separate epidemiological data showed that uh, high levels or excess levels of body fat were also uh, related to an increased risk of particularly breast cancer and colon cancer and a number of other diseases as well that, you, again, your, your GP listeners will appreciate. So one of the early uh, understanding, I suppose, that we, we spoke about to students 30 years ago was that if we could reduce body fat through behavioral change and diet and exercise, then we were going to reduce the risk of cancer. But the mechanisms have moved forward from that. So reducing body fat is absolutely critical. But we're now beginning to understand that there's obviously more than one mechanism involved in here to explain the relationship between exercise and cancer. So I guess that also explains some of the idea that perhaps insulin resistance and elevated insulin levels, uh, I know I'd read some stuff about that, uh, perhaps playing a role as well. 
but what's the latest research mm. in in terms of what do we think now apart from that sort of thing that's causing uh, that causes this wonderful effect? Well, you touched on uh, insulin, and we know that inflammation. And we can speak about inflammation and the the, uh, the the mitigating effect that exercise has on systemic inflammation another time. But inflammation is certainly involved in uh, in, in triggering and enhancing the uh, milieu, the physiological milieu that sort of favours the growth of cancer cells. So reducing inflammation is certainly part of it. But the the other area that we're looking at at the moment, um, and not only us, but there are other groups around the world who are doing this as well, but actually recognizing the role of skeletal muscle. Um, and skeletal muscle historically, I mean, I can, again, I can remember speaking to students about this, Alison, many years ago, and skeletal muscle was solely a, a means of getting us from A to B. Um, and it was just about locomotion. We, we were talking, you know, it, it, basically that's what it was. But in the background, 20 years ago, there were Clever, clever scientists around the world asking themselves the question, well, surely skeletal muscle does more than just get us from A to B and generate force. And what they were able to identify, uh, Scandinavian researchers, but there was an Australian flavour and input to this as well, but skeletal muscle was shown 20 years ago to secrete myokines. Now, myokines are simply cytokines, which again, your listeners will be familiar with. Cytokines are these um, chemical triggers uh, and communicators that are released from various tissues around the body in response to disturbance and homeostasis. But what they were able to show up to 20 years ago, and actually this, I'll, I'll explain how this has moved very, very quickly forward, but the muscle, when it contracts, secretes myokines. Up to 300 different myokines are secreted as muscle contracts. And one of the foci in most recent years has been identifying what these myokines actually do. Um, and... and I think we're only only beginning to appreciate the tip of the iceberg in what muscle is actually doing to maintain health. One of these um, myokines has been identified as being influential in reducing tumor growth. So um, just to summarize just what I've spoken about briefly now to this point before you ask your next uh, informative question. The, so when muscle contracts, it releases a range of these myokines, these chemical signalers. One of these, at least one, probably many more than just the one, but we've, we know that the, the, these myokines, amongst other things, reduce the growth of tumor cells. So that means that every time you move your muscles, it's like you're squeezing out these magical myokines which are heading out there to protect you against cancer. Would, would that be a too simplistic way of looking at it? That's a brilliant, the magical myokines, I think you can probably market that, uh, Alison, you can magical well, don't myokines. tell anyone, <laughs> I'll be marketing it. <laughs> so. Um, yes, so a few years ago, we published a study in uh, Journal of Physiology that examined two different intensities of exercise with the same group of individuals. And we sampled blood after exercise. So it was a moderate intensity exercise and a high intensity exercise. Same group of individuals on two different occasions. We sampled the post-exercise blood. We took that blood and we washed this blood through across 
cancer cell lines that had been grown in a laboratory. So, and what we found was the blood that was taken post high intensity exercise suppressed the growth of these cancer cells to a greater extent than the moderate intensity exercise. So the moderate still helped, but the higher intensity exercise had an even greater effect. Is, is that? Yes, yes. Our, our experiment wasn't designed to, to compare against no exercise. Other, other research groups had already done that. Um, what we were able, what we were intending to show our hypothesis was to um, to show that the higher intensity exercise was likely to have a greater effect than the moderate. So previous groups had shown that exercise alone compared to no exercise, the blood sample following it, suppressed the growth of these cancer cells uh, in vitro. We were able to show that intensity of exercise became important uh, to this suppression of growth. When you say in high intensity exercise, uh, what, what sort of exercise are you talking about? So the experiment that we set up was on a stationary bicycle and we had in it our participants um, undertake their high intensity exercise. So they, they exercised at about 80 or 90% of their maximum for four minutes. Then they had a three minute break and then they exercised again at the same high intensity for four minutes, three minute break. And there were three, uh, there were four, four minute bouts separated by three minutes of recovery. So what this represents, the heart rate was around about 80% of their maximum for four minute periods. So basically you have to get to about 80%. So maybe going for a run, riding your bike, being in a competitive sport where you're running, if you could possibly have some high intensity exercise included, that's going to give you extra benefit. And the reason I harp on that is I think as I've seen as I've grown older, you know, I do a lot of walking, but the actual getting out there and apart from now when I chase my dog, you know, I don't tend to do that much of that sort of activity. And I guess so it's recognising that that is important to be doing as well. It is. And the other thing, we're sort of backing off a little bit. Um, I mean, we'd use this four minutes as, as a sort of stock standard because it's been used in other clinical conditions. But our suspicion is that we just have to recruit our type 2B or our fast-twitch muscle fibres for much shorter durations than four minutes. It can be as brief. There have been some outstanding research studies put out from Canada, for example, to show that even as little as 10 seconds of recruitment of these fast-twitch fibres will elicit the kind of changes that will be favourable, we think, across all health conditions, including cancer. So our suspicion is we, we think that these myokines that are, are going to suppress tumour growth can be released as a result of very, very brief exercise, but provided the, these fast twitch fibers are recruited from the skeletal muscle. That is just brilliant to know about. So, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like it's too hard to do, but it's knowing that you sometimes have to push yourself a little bit, even if it's for not that long, to get the magic myokines that are extra, extra good. And how long do they last? Well, that's another very good question. We're not sure. If I can use as a, as a sort of parallel example here, if you eat a meal and your glucose goes up, and we know that the glucose in response to insulin will come back down again after a particular period of time. We're not sure how long these myokines remain high in the blood, but we know it's transient. We are also, the reason why I'm sort of circumspect in my response to you, Alison, is because the, the intensity and the duration of exercise will profoundly influence how long these myokines stay high in the blood. The most important thing for us to understand is that they are transient. 
So they could be gone within an hour. They can be back to baseline. Once homeostasis returns, they, uh, the, these myokines and, and all the other catecholamines and all these other things will be back to pretty much normal. So one of the, the lines that we're thinking on at the moment is that if we want to get a, a sort of spike in these myokines, and we can think about cancer prevention and, and reducing the risk of cancer recurrence and so forth, but th this can be extended to other clinical conditions too. If we want to get these spikes, the spike in the myokine release from skeletal muscle, perhaps we should be thinking about uh, exercising more than once a day for, for briefer periods of time and perhaps up to three times a day. Even though the, the current physiotivity and health guidelines don't specifically recommend breaking up, they don't discourage it at all. In fact, they say that if you can't exercise in one big block, you, you should break it up. But I think the breaking up is going to be more advantageous to overall health as we move forward than perhaps one big block of exercise. I mean, I think that's so encouraging because I think often, particularly for people who don't exercise, that's so much more palatable, you know, rather than saying, oh, I've got half an hour ahead of me, you can kind of break it into smaller amounts and, and, and you can do your lower intensity, but have some high intensity as well. So I think this is incredibly important information. It just occurred to me, how much muscle you have? Is it the more muscle you have, the more magic myokines you have? That's another fine question, Alison. Uh, again, what I'm thinking, what we think about, although it'll take many years to actually show this experimentally, but it makes perfect sense that you if you have more muscle mass that is active, you're going to have a greater release of these myokines and then the, the, the protective effect that these myokines have upon a whole range of things, including suppression of tumor cells, is going to be enhanced. What this means if we extrapolate this back or extrapolate it forward, say, well, okay, muscle mass is important here. And this immediately brings into the picture resistance training and the maintenance and enhancement of muscle mass, particularly as we age. So we'll have an opportunity to speak about the importance of resistance and muscle strength and training uh, another time. But what we're trying to encourage people to do as general exercise physiologists at the moment is to maintain and enhance muscle mass as we age. And we do that for a number of reasons, not least as, as you and your listeners will know, to prevent falls, to maintain independent living as we age through and become frail. In addition to that, we need to remember that the muscles are producing these magic myokines as you've turned them out. So we need basically some high intensity. We probably need to do things a few times a day and we need to be doing some resistance training to keep our muscles up. Can I just share with you a, a patient that this brings to mind? I've been looking after Anne. She's a 62-year-old lady, previously extremely fit. I mean, she ran marathons. She got uh, breast cancer and really the, the treatment was very grueling for her. She was extremely fatigued, very, very unwell from it. And she also had an injury, so she couldn't exercise at all. And I saw her um, early this year and unfortunately found that she had cancer in the other breast, uh, which was devastating. And I, uh, while she's sort of waiting for her surgery and chemotherapy, had tried to get her in to see the most amazing um, exercise physiologist that I use, mainly for her mental state. To be honest, I wasn't even thinking about her cancer. 
but she didn't end up going. And I guess this is all making me think that I wish I'd had this information to give her. I mean, could I have recommended it even when she was heading into chemotherapy? Absolutely, Alison. There's a group over at Edith Cowan University um, that moves patients in a hospital setting from immediately from after they've had chemotherapy into an adjoining room where they get them to exercise. And the exercise improves, amongst other things, you mentioned mental health. I mean, that, that's a completely different, very important area, but the, the exercise improves the delivery of, of these chemicals to the tumours, so it enhances the effectiveness of the chemotherapy itself. It's important to appreciate that patients who are undergoing uh, radiation and chemotherapy are often absolutely flawed. So any exercise is going to be a benefit. They don't have to be chastising themselves if they can't undertake high-intensity exercise in those sort of situations. Any exercise is going to be good, not only for uh, delivery of the chemicals uh, to, to the tumours, but also, as you mentioned, the, the mental health. We also begin to appreciate here how exercise improves sleep um, and reduces overall cancer-related fatigue. I mean, that's just all so important. Just out of interest, how do we think it gets the chemicals to the cancer better? Oh, it's blood flow. It's, it's blood flow. So as we increase exercise or as we exercise, blood flow increases, as we know, to the peripheries. It's not only going to be targeting the, um, the, the tumor cells, it's going to target all cells, which is a problem because th this is where chemotherapy, in particular in radiation, damages good tissue as well as bad tissue. But it's, it's the delivery. It improves the delivery through the blood flow. So the chemotherapy is getting there. And the magic mykines are getting there as well. So it's just, and they feel better. So it's a win-win. Uh, in the case of my patient, I, as I say, I have an absolutely amazing exercise physiologist. I use most beautiful lady. Uh, and I've organized an EPC referral, which means that she'll get um, five visits of, of around $53 each. But, uh, and I understand this is the ideal. The ideal is they go to an exercise physiologist. Are all exercise physiologists going to be up to date with what really is pretty groundbreaking information? Well, the mechanisms, they're currently in progress. So we've got work that, that will be published, but uh, relating to this material that I'm speaking to you at the moment, but this will be in a couple of years' time. Um, but what the EPs will be familiar with is the value of high-intensity exercise. They may not know the specific mechanisms that are currently unfolding, but they will be familiar with that. And the EP, absolutely, in terms of prescription of exercise, would be the ideal, as you mentioned. But if you can't afford an EP or if you don't have an EP... Uh, close to you, then walking up a hill, and I, I tried to think about these examples earlier on, so you, you don't have to have a sophisticated exercise program in order to elicit these favorable benefits to the prevention of these diseases. You, you can do wonderful things on your own, provided you can try and insert where possible these higher intensities to try and go to the point where you're puffing for as little as 10 seconds. So it doesn't have to be any more than that. 10 seconds of high puff, have a rest, and maybe one or two of those or three of those a day would be absolutely perfect. And that, that's just so easy. And I think, it, you know, when you have a patient and you, you can kind of explain underneath what's happening, you get them more motivated, you're more motivated and, and you're, you're more passionate about handing on the information. So I think this is incredibly important, incredibly meaningful stuff. And I know I will be talking to patients in my practice about magical myokines. So much wonderful, useful information that we can take straight back into our practices. That was Dr. Alison Vickers and Professor David Jenkins discussing the latest evidence in the use of physical activity in cancer prevention and management. 
The Checkup series of podcasts is brought to you by Medcast. Medcast offers a range of courses to healthcare professionals, ranging from critical care courses to our popular Hot Topic series of workshops and webinars. To find out more about our range of courses, visit our website, medcast.com.au. Thanks for listening.